question for you. Mm. I know you said earlier you'd prefer for us not to drink water during your Dharma talk. Mm. What about taking notes? Also not to take notes. Um, one of the things that happens when you're listening with a reflective awareness is, is that even though it might not lodge in memory in the same way, it lodges someplace else. Like there's, it's not in conceptual memory so much that it was, but it can touch you in ways that it can be a, um, a ripening or a clarification. So thank you for asking, but preference not to take notes. Yeah. benefit of those who are less familiar with monastic tradition, this chanting before giving a Dhamma talk is really a code um, to listen uh, in a particular way. And so um, we have all kinds of conventions and ways in which we use um, structure to support clarity or to support confusion. And the point of this chanting is to is to have a, a signaling for both for all of us that we're entering into a, a different kind of way of speaking. So the kind of talking about notes or the kind of talking about information or the kind of talking about um, logistics is one kind of talking and the kind of talking around the Dhamma talk is meant to be a slightly different kind of talking where what's the encouragement is to is to let 80 to 90 percent of your attention be suffused in your own body awareness suffused inwardly rather than focused on me and what it is that I'm <coughs> saying so that when I say something that resonates you'll know it because there'll be a kind of aha the, the body will relax the, the mind will open you'll know it because your body will respond and so when most of your attention is inwardly relaxed in, a, in inwardly attending to what you're feeling in yourself then when something you hear resonates it's, it's in a, a, a very uh, fertile environment and that fertility of receptivity of awareness can catalyze significant shifts and so you know there's certainly times when people have very profound insight just listening so the listening with that whole mind body experience is a different kind of attention than when we're trying to conceptualize it with words and so I mean there's certainly nothing (coughs) wrong with taking notes but it, it can take away the attention from the whole mind-body process so that the fertility of, of what can happen is less. And um, that's the reason why in the 
classical teachings, there's a whole bunch of instructions about when it's okay to teach and when it's not okay to teach. And mostly those instructions are about setting it up so that the, the, uh, the potency is as ripe as possible so that the insight can happen. And, you know, on a, on a corollary note, you know, over the last several years, when my dad died, I collected a whole bunch of seeds and I scattered them all over the property and I was very happy for, for wildflowers to grow and different things to grow. And I, I collected thousands of seeds and I scattered thousands of seeds and not many of them grew. But a couple of miles away from us is this greenhouse where the conditions are really optimum. And most of the time, the germination rate is really high. And so it's, it's like the Dhamma equivalent of a greenhouse. You know? <coughs> We're wanting to just create the conditions so that, so that we, 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 there's, a, there's an understanding, a, a, a kind of a somatic resonance, a, a, a deep upwelling when something rings true. So, um, you know, at the end of the first day of a retreat, it's like, you know, I want to I wanna give out gold stars and ring bells and, and give everyone a hug. It's like, congratulations, we all survived. <laughs> and this is not a soft, gentle, sweet, easy place, you know. The sun is harsh, the wind is fierce, the sand and the grit covers everything, everywhere, all the time. You know, we sweep and then two minutes later you need to sweep again. And, you know, no matter how many times you put on cool rags, it's hot all of a sudden right again. So it's just not a, an easy transition to a retreat center like this that's in the middle of the desert with few amenities. And uh, and so it takes some, some shifting to actually settle in here. And most of us are operating on city speed, and most of us live in accommodations that are comfortable. And this is a change, being here. It's slower. It's not as comfortable. The elements are fierce and in our face all the time. And in addition to the kind of transition to a meditation center, in town distance, we have the largest marine base in the country. So we have the juxtaposition between the aspiration to awaken and the military establishment that is doing whatever it's doing in sound distance away from us with helicopters and who knows what else they're up to. So we're like, uh, it's like... Um, the juxtapositions of what we're navigating is not an easy thing to relax into. And so it can take some time and some care and some tenderness to just make the transition and, 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 and recognize that no ma- almost no matter how careful we are, it's impossible to close the screen door quietly. <laughs> <laughs> And if we miss a moment of mindfulness, the wind catches it and slams it, you know. And every window and every door in this whole place is like that, you know. (laughs) So there's like lots of mindfulness spells, lots of opportunities to slow down and relax and let go and recognize it's not possible to get it right. 
It's like, give it up. (laughs) We're not going to get it right, you know? And that's one of the reasons why this place is so fabulous for meditation, because we can't get it right, you know? We can't make it quiet. We can't make it comfortable. We can't make it clean. We can't get the grit out of our face and our eyes and our clothes and our nose. It's like this. We have to kind of just relax into it being like this. And in relaxing into it being like this, we can begin to stop the kind of battle that we're constantly engaging and trying to get it right on an internal level with ourselves. And so, in some ways, this is absolutely perfect place for meditation. And I completely understand why Ruth loved this place so much and why such a strong community gathered around her. Because when you've got an environment that's like this and a strong teacher that can keep pointing out important truths, then you can you can use the environment to help us work our mind. And so you can rub it, you can rub it, you can rub it until the thing begins to relax and unravel and begin to open and we can begin to just be with, ah, it's just like this, you know. I can't make it different. I can't make it not sandy. I can't make it not windy. I can't make my body stop hurting, you know like this and so the, the practice is a combination of bringing care and attention and curiosity into the present moment watching what's happening and watching our gripping our, 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 our contorting our wanting our not wanting our wrestling our negotiating with the wind I was negotiating with the fly. Yeah, I, I'm good. I'm cool with flies. I'm good with flies, just not in my nose. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, that thought is like 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 a drone. It just goes right to the nose. <laughs> so it's like, can I even surrender to the fly in my nose? You know. Like, I don't want to surrender to the fly. What's the value of surrendering to the fly in my nose? So there's tightness, and I can notice the tightness. And when I relax around the tightness, then I can just be with the sensation, intense sensation. But when there's a a little bit of stillness with that intense sensation, it's just a sensation. And there isn't the gripping, the grabbing, the pushing, the reacting, the fabricating around it. It isn't me and a fly battling it out. It's just intense sensation. And so that kind of sense of, well, all right, so that's an intense and very unpleasant sensation. And and then when there's a little bit of stillness with it, it's just sensation. And so the, the gripping of it, the kind of the, the, the mind moving and running begins to slow down. And there's just the clarity to observe what's happening in the nuances and the layers. And, you know, for me, and I'm imagining also for others, the first day is 
you know, I'm moving in and out of fatigue that is like so difficult to stay present with because it kind of shuts the whole system down. I can't track what's going on when the energy drops beneath a certain threshold, you know. So it's just gently bringing skillfulness, gently bringing a renewal, gently taking care, gently walking, resting when I need to, drinking, gently, gently, gently. And it begins to start shifting and I start feeling a little bit more bright. It's not that I have done anything. I haven't made the brightness happen. I've just stayed with the conditions, worked with them, leaned into them, massaged, finessed it until it just begins to settle. So part of it's a question of just perseverance and time, and part of it's a question of bringing skillfulness. So when I was um, at in college, I was studying biochemistry and working in a laboratory, and we had a different kinds of experiments that we were doing, and we had a centrifuge. And so, you know, if you would take a whole bunch of things and you just let it sit, you know, in a hundred thousand years, it would settle out. But if you put it in a centrifuge and you spun it, you know, in ten minutes, it would settle out. So one of the reasons why we do this practice is because it's like a centrifuge. It it's, it speeds up the process of, of separating out the layers and distilling the solid and the liquid. And in, in, in the laboratory, it was useful because we could do certain things with liquids and certain things with solids that we couldn't do when it was all mixed up together. <coughs> and so when we're looking at, well, why... <coughs> Why do we practice? You know, I love the joke, you know, we're, we're doing this for nothing and that's all we can expect, you know. It's like, it's slightly hilarious. But on another hand, it's actually extraordinarily profound. And to understand it really takes us into the deep dive of what dependent origination is all about. For most of us, we can... You know, we, we get contact, we get feeling, you know, we feel the heat of the sun, we feel the ferocity of the wind, the, the, the fly in our nose. It's like, it's pretty unmistakable contact. And with that contact is a feeling. And the feeling, depending on what it is, is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral feeling. Now, most of the time we don't catch feeling we see the contact and the feeling and the perception that comes like as a lump that does not separate it out. We don't actually see it as distinct components to it. But when that's pleasant feeling, we want it, you know, the luscious, cool watermelon, yum, you know. When it's unpleasant feeling, we don't want it. Yuck! And when it's neutral feeling, we space out. We're not present. We disappear. We start our thoughts thinking because we're not able just to be quiet with the uh, neutral feeling. So without actually catching these different layers, contact gives rise to feeling, and this starts the whole process of craving, wanting and not wanting. And then the craving then shifts from just this 
feeling that is arising to something that I, I am invested in. I want it. I want the watermelon. I want the fly to go away. I want it to not be so hot. I don't want to be hit in the head by the curtains blowing. (coughs) I want it. Or I want the pleasant feeling. I want to feel happy. I want to feel rested. I want to feel energetic. I want to feel joy. I want to feel like I understand what I'm supposed to be doing. I want to feel it. And so the I constellates around experience and in that constellation it supports an increase of attachment, an increase of craving. And then we start strategizing. How do I get it? How do I get rid of it? How do I make it happen? How do I hold on to this feeling? And that strategizing is the process of becoming, and the birth is the process of identification. And once there's birth, even birth into the watermelon, there's going to be the end of the watermelon. And some measure of disappointment, some measure of it's over, the pleasure is over, it didn't last, it's over. Or we did succeed in getting rid of the fly, only for the fly to come back again. And so the cycle is constantly going on, around and around, and around and around, and around and around, and around and around. And it has been doing this since the beginning of life. Now, when there's disappointment, when there's despair, when there's frustration, when there's aggravation, when we're feeling fed up because of the 10,000 reasons that we can feel fed up, we have a choice. And the choice is is that we can be present with that dissatisfaction, with the sadness, with the grief, with the pain, with the frustration, in a way where we are just meeting it, where we can go find another piece of watermelon try and distract ourselves with another pleasant experience that's going to overlay on top of the unsatisfaction. So with that experience of, of dukkha, of suffering, there's, 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 a, there's a fork in the road that we can take. And that fork is, is that we can use the suffering in order to help us release suffering, or we can use that suffering in order to create more behavior, activity, reaction that causes more suffering. But the interesting thing, really, is not... The problem is not with contact. The problem is not with the watermelon. It's not with the fly. It's not with the wind. It's not with the grit in our eyes. It's that there's, there's, a, there's a layer of, of ignorance that is shaping our perceptions that conditions us to grab hold of these experiences in a particular way. And that is actually the problem.
not the contact. And one of the really significant reasons why what we're doing is important is because if we expand that joke, which is there's nothing happening, that nothing happening is so incredibly powerful because we are not continuing in that nothing, in that circle of suffering. In that nothing, there isn't suffering. There isn't grasping. There isn't wanting. There isn't not wanting. There isn't pushing. There isn't becoming. There isn't birth. There isn't the manufacturing of more conditions that gives rise to ignorance. So that nothing is huge. It's, a, it's an unraveling of the whole cycle. Dropping into the stillness and just being with what is and not expecting the next thing to happen. Just being with it. Meeting it. Seeing it. Feeling it. Knowing it without reacting to it. It is so huge because the cycle of suffering is so deeply embedded and so everywhere, all the time. When we begin to engage with the practice and stop following, we miss how huge that is. We don't see it. We see it as a nothing. As a nothing significant. Rather than the presence of the ending of the whole circle of suffering. We see it as an absence of something that is compelling, that's grabbing our attention, that's exciting, that's interesting. So each moment of mindfulness when we actually are able to be with what is. Our tears our body aches, our mind, our energy low, the fly, the slamming doors, the helicopter noise. Just be with it, just be with it, just be with it, just be with it, just be with it. Without this whole thing of I want it, I don't want it, how am I going to get it, how am I going to get rid of it? In that moment, the whole thing has unraveled. And the unraveling is the ending of dukkha. The ending of suffering. The ending of stress. Now, it's, 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 it's right 
that because the conditioning is so strong that we continuously need to apply the mindfulness because the habit instinct keep arises again and again and again and again and again. But that the underpinning of ignorance is not clear seeing. And the power of this practice is, is that it replaces not clear seeing with clear seeing. It dismantles ignorance. So as long as we have a body and a heart and a mind, we're going to experience contact. I mean, there might be times when we go into very deep states of stillness and our experience of contact is very, very, very refined. But that's conditioned. When we come out of those experiences of stillness, we experience contact. And so the problem is not with contact. The problem is with ignorance. But (coughs) ignorance doesn't see itself. Ignorance shapes the way we experience the world. It shapes the way we see things. It shapes what we pick up and what we view and what we look at and how we relate to it. But it doesn't say, I am ignorance doing this. And so we have to come through the back door. And the back door is through seeing. Seeing clearly. Waking up to what's happening. Seeing clearly. Being with what is. And even when what is, is grubby, irritating, aggravating, tear-invoking, frustrating, exasperating, exalted, fabulous, wondrous. That moment of clear seeing. The wheel stops turning. And that momentum which is going on since the beginning of life itself slows down for a moment. So it's an interesting journey that we're on because on one hand we're coming home to what is true and what is real and what is alive and what is ever-present what is timeless. And that's true no matter if we're here or we're in our comfortable house or we're in the city. And yet the reality is is that the nature of our conditioning is is that it's a lot harder to see it in certain circumstances and a little bit easier to see it in others. So these retreats are set up to support optimizing the conditions to make it possible to see what is true and to continue to return to that place of presence, of awareness, of 
clarity in ourselves and in support and with each other. A retreat center does not have a monopoly on presence. And yet, the nature of the mind's tenacity to grasp and to cling and to formulate an I, a me, a my, and a you is out there and is separate and is fundamentally different and distinct from me that is somehow in here. Pretty tenacious habits. And so simple things like coming in and out of the door, walking back and forth on a path, sitting without a whole lot happening, help us reorganize our awareness to be with what is. Where we have a little bit more support to watch the mind's tendency to fly out, to grab on, to invest in story, to notice the wanting, the not wanting. Our preferences, our opinions, our views, and how all of that is playing into this whole cycle. So the practice is not about shutting it down. It's about waking up to what it is and shifting our allegiance from the habits of conditioning to the qualities of, 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 of curiosity and tenderness and, and warmth, kindness. So that those become more familiar resting places as we navigate the fly and the door and the grit and the watermelon, which is what's happening in our life. really two elements to why we practice. One is as Sharon spoke about, you know, getting smacked in the face, punched in the face. You know, these challenges that we have to navigate. And I think the other is is, is that there's a there's a there's a radical experience of love, of clarity, of light. that is what is present when we clear away some of our reactivity. It's not romantic love that it's for a particular person. It's resting in love. That that's 
our natural state. And that natural state includes ourselves and our own experience as well as others. And so certainly, you know, the dukkha factor of life for many of us is... There's a lo- there's lots of times when we feel like we've been punched in the face, you know, or catastrophic illnesses that have taken huge amounts of our time and energy to reorganize and reorient around, or significant traumas that we're navigating. And it is not in any way to dismiss the challenge of any of those things. But there's a quality of presence that's very much like love. It's welcoming, embracing, attentive, attuned, caring, responsive that is available when we're not grasping when we're not in in battle in warfare with the fly and so both of these challenges that we experience and the potential of what is possible in this life. The quality of love and care and kindness and respect that is possible in this life. Can support us in the perseverance and staying with it. particularly on a first day when it's notoriously challenging for just about everybody. So the whole cycle of suffering really is an expansion on the second noble truth, the cause of suffering. When we can understand and be present with the unsatisfactoriness of wanting and not wanting, we can focus in on the different layers of what is actually going on in that. And so rather than falling from a tree and just noticing that we hit the floor, we begin to feel and sense some of the branches that we pass through on the way down. Know them, name them get curious about them, sometimes be able to use them for leverage so that we don't hit so hard.
But for me, really, the whole purpose of the path, you know, when I saw pictures of Ajahn Chah, even when I was in his presence, when I was in his presence, you know, he already by that point was no longer speaking and hadn't been for many years. But my intuition was is that his mind was vast. His body was very limited and very unwell, but his mind was vast. The whole process of this practice of touching the suffering is to experience the release of suffering. What is that? Does that interest you? Or like Deepama, you know, being in her presence. Where the feeling with being in Deepama's presence was being in this radiant, infinite field of love. You know, she was this tall. And she was huge. Absolutely huge. Filled with love. Just this incredible, deep, still, pervasive love. And so, this nothing that we're doing is a very special kind of nothing. Because this is where it can lead to understanding suffering, releasing suffering, releasing suffering and knowing what is vast, what is ever-present, what is timeless, what is pervasive. is free. And so admittedly it takes some grit in ourselves to navigate the challenges of being in a situation on retreat, navigating the challenges of our mind and body, going through all that it goes through. So we can take some time and just acknowledge that and feel some gratitude that we all survived. (laughs) 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 The first day is tough. It's always tough. For nearly everyone, it's always tough. We got through the first day. And so the practice is bringing together the conditions that support 
the separating out of elements so that we can see them clearly, so we're less confused by them, so that we have more choice about how we respond to what's going on. So the choices that we make are more congruent with what our deepest aspirations are longing for rather than following the habits of our patterning that is so deeply ingrained. And we can't do this alone in isolation by ourselves. We need each other for that. And so as we shift gears and move more into inquiry practice, there'll be an opportunity to bring the quality of presence internally, externally, and watch how that presence supports deeper insight. It's like the two together is greater than the sum of the individual parts. And so part of the power of an opportunity like this and part of the power of a place that's been a retreat center for decades and decades is just that it's It's part of what's already here. Just need to tap into the long standing blessings that are already here. As we learn how to move forward with kindness, with clarity, with insight, and the finessing between not having to push through and not caving in, that middle path that feels our way through something. And just notice what happens to the body as we do that that it becomes more full and more (coughs) present and more parts of our own physical body become alive to us, awake to us as we navigate. And let's see if we can let our body be a sounding board for the quality of presence that we bring in the present moment. that it can be our ally in this way, giving us really clear feedback. When we're pushing, and we're caving in, 
when we're just fully present. So keep it simple and keeping dependent origination simple is actually quite complicated. (laughs) 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 But we'll see if we can feel our way through this using our body as a basis the quality of relationship as a basis to get a sense for what does this all mean and how is it that we have choice places that we didn't see before and how can we optimize them so enough for tonight And I'd like to close the evening with some chanting. (coughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.